0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books in Film. How many cinephiles does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't have a punchline for this joke, but if anyone would, it's Dr. Giersh Shambu, Professor of Management at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. Uh, Dr. Shambu teaches sustainability and supply, supply chain management. In his dual career as a film blogger, critic, and scholar, Girish is editor of Film Quarterly's online column, Quorum. His writings have appeared in the Criterion Collection, Framework Journal of Film and Media, and Film Quarterly, and his book, The New Cinephilia, came out with its second edition in 2020. Thank you for joining us, Girish.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Annie.
1: Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Well, as you can tell by the seamless way that I pronounced supply chain management, this may be the first time I've ever interviewed a professor of management for this podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about your professional and personal trajectory and how you've combined these two, I would say, complementary but not identical fields of study, which is that of business and that of of cinema? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, thank you. Um, my, my kind of route into, into, into film has been kind of peculiar and circuitous, I would say. Uh, I have no formal background in film. I've never taken any film classes or taught film as a film faculty member. Um, as you mentioned, I teach sustainability and supply chain management at a Jesuit uh, liberal arts college. I came to film as a teenage cinephile growing up in India in the 1980s, and we were a big movie-going family. So we went to the movies once or twice a week, and it was always a highlight of my week. And I was especially drawn to Hindi films, uh, Bengali films, and Tamil films. So these were like my earliest experiences as a a, a cinephile. Hindi because Hindi is sort of the national language of India. Uh, Bengali because we lived in Calcutta. Uh, in Bengal, and Tamil is my native uh, language. And then uh, when I got to university, which was the Indian Institute of Technology near Calcutta to study chemical engineering, which is my background, Uh, I started reading about Western cinema um, in the library there. Um, The the library had very few non-engineering publications, but The New Yorker was one of them. So I started religiously reading The New Yorker film section. And then I encountered uh, a book by James Monaco um, called The French New Wave. And the book was written in the 1970s, mid-1970s. And I actually fell in love with the descriptions and the photos. Uh, Couldn't actually see the films themselves because... Imports of Western films were restricted in India at the time. And it wasn't until the 90s that India opened its doors uh, to kind of Western um, imports fully. Um, so I tried to imagine the films based on what I read, on the descriptions that I read. So that was kind of my way into Western cinema. And then I loved all that so much that I decided to apply for a PhD in the US in manufacturing management so I could come to the US. Uh, I was, of course, interested in manufacturing management, but I think I was, if I were to be honest with myself, I was even more interested in coming here so I could you know, watch a lot of movies and have access to the cinema that I that I didn't have as a teenager so I moved to the US in my 20s Uh, I finished my PhD I got a faculty position in um, in management in manufacturing management and then in the 90s I discovered Cinematech Ontario which is this incredible organization in Toronto that's part of the TIFF group Toronto International Film Festival and there was a programmer there James Quant, who used to program these incredible retrospectives of filmmakers like uh, Robert, Robert Bresson, Jean Renoir, Chantal Ackerman, Ho Shao Shen, Agnes Varda. So I was seeing loads and loads of brilliant cinema. And I was just bursting with kind of thoughts about the cinema. And I wanted to write about it, talk about it. So and then I started a blog, which was part of the first wave of film blogs, um, about 20 years ago. And that connected me with other cinephiles. And and um, that's kind of, that kind of put me on the path to to where I am now.
1: That is such a beautiful story. Imagining <laughs> these films, well, I I love it. I loved it. Um, and I want to hear a lot more about that. But I have other questions to ask you about your work. Uh, so we can we can maybe circle back off air about how much I want that story to be its own movie, and that I would watch that movie. Um, okay, uh, can you introduce those of us? Now, you know, New Books and Film has a varied listenership. You know, there are a lot of academics listening, but for those who are maybe uh, new to the concept of cinephilia, uh, can you sort of talk about, before we get into the new cinephilia, maybe we should discuss the old cinephilia, what is its traditional meaning and its the historical context it emerged, from which it emerged?
0: Okay. Well, cinephilia um, is an idea and a practice that dates back at least to the 1920s um, in France. So we have people like Louis Deluc and Jean Epstein who were writers, uh, critics, but also filmmakers. Um, And then uh, cinephilia kind of continues through the 30s with the founding of the Cinémathèque Française and, but it, it kind of uh, arrives at its most um, visible, globally visible manifestation, I would say, in the 1950s um, in Paris at the Journal Cahiers du Cinema. And the critics there, like uh, André Bazin and all the younger critics like François Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard and Eric Romer, Claude Chabrol, Um, All of these people, these young writers who would go on to make films uh, that would launch the French New Wave, uh, they kind of put cinephilia on the world map. And they were, you know, assiduous and obsessive movie watchers who would gather at the Cinematheque uh, almost daily to watch and watch films, argue about them, write about them, etc. So um, cinephilia, if I were to formally define it, it would be not just a desire to see a lot of movies. That's, of course, part of cinephilia. It's not just a voracious appetite for movies. It's more than that. It's also like a powerful desire to think about movies, talk about them, write about them. And in however informal and unconventional a form. So um, in other words, it's like a, a great kind of burning interest, not just in films, but the discourse around films. So that's how I would describe cinephilia.
1: I'm just, I'm formulating my, my, um, my punchline to the cinephiles screwing <laughs> in a light bulb joke. Maybe I'll give it at the end, but I'm, I'm, it's for me, it's, it's percolating. Um, so you wrote this first book, the first edition of the new cinephilia in 2014. And if I may sort of quickly summarize your primary focus is a lot having to do with having written the, one of the first film blogs to sort of gain a readership. And it has to do with not entirely, but a lot to do with sort of the internet discourses and how the, how the internet created this new public sphere for, for cinephile, cine, cinephiles and <laughs> cinephilia to flourish. Um, why did you decide? I mean, the internet's still still going strong. Not not the same. Uh, not not arguably not better. But it's still you know it's still the kids still like the internet. Uh, so why did you decide to revisit your argument in 2020? Uh, did the nature of Cynophilia change? Or did your opinions evolve? Was it a little bit of both?
0: yeah it's um it's a it's a kind of a funny story which is that um, a couple of years after I wrote the book and the book came out in 2014 um, it uh, it dawned on me I became increasingly conscious of a horrible blind spot in the book which is um The book analyzes um, the democratization of cinephilia and film culture since the advent of the Internet. Um, It's most interested in in looking at all these affordances, these new affordances made uh, possible by the Internet. And it's kind of utopian in that regard. And also the issue of cinephile pleasure is kind of implicit in the book all the way through the book. But what the book sidelines doesn't pay as much attention to are issues of justice. And so once it dawned on me that this is what I had written, because that was my primary interest at the time, um, I realized that I needed to revisit the book to to expand it and uh it felt incomplete at that point so um by justice what i mean is that the fact um the fact that the landscape of film culture is and has always been extremely uneven extremely unequal and especially in the west film culture has been dominated by a minority which is straight white men both as filmmakers and as critics and writers and um, one important tool of choice used by them, uh, one key kind of mechanism uh, in the history and process of this domination has been otourism. So I felt like I had to take up otourism and analyze it and talk about it.
1: So let's talk about otourism. then the relationship between tourism and xenophilia, um, this white male, heterosexual, largely canon,, um, has a lot of overlap with autourism, which you refer to as cinema's man-spreading machine. What is autourism, and how is it a man-spreading machine?
0: Okay, so auteurism is a kind of reading strategy. Autourism looks at films um, with, with most of its interest and focus on the director of the film and looks at the entire film through that lens um, and um, kind of a tourism is concerned with tracking the style of a particular director, the stylistic signature, um, all the hallmarks of that style, and then connecting it to various themes that might be important, various obsessions that might be important to that particular director. So that becomes the the the, the main focus uh, of criticism. Now, you know, one of the uh, great. Uh, f- French New Wave figures, François Truffaut, a big figure in cinephilia and in film culture, Truffaut had a famous kind of credo, which then became also a big, um, you know, cinephilic credo, which is the worst film by an auteur is more interesting than the best film by a non-auteur. So you really wanted to like valorize the auteur by, um, by kind of, you know, proclaiming this credo. So what happens when you translate this credo into viewing practices and writing practices? There are actually two serious effects, two serious consequences. One of them is that it kind of drastically narrows the range of films that deserve to be written about, that deserve to be talked about, uh, because the title of auteur, the status of auteur, was accorded very carefully and stingily to only a few filmmakers mostly men. Um, Second, it kind of focuses the critic's eye on the body of work of an auteur and kind of returns to that body of work time and again to explore, you know, the style and the theme and see how consistent they are across the body of work. And so in a weird way, it keeps... It keeps returning to the same body of work over and over again, whether the films are actually good or not. So it kind of maintains focus on a few auteurs and their body of work. So in that sense, auteurism becomes this kind of mechanism for endlessly multiplying discourse on a limited number of directors. In other words, a kind of man spreading machine.
1: Right. I mean, it's something that, I mean, I think there's a lot, for me, I think there's like a lot of interest in sort of looking at bodies of work, although I don't necessarily think the director is the only thing that can connect a body of text in an interesting way. But one of the big shortcomings of auteurism, I won't say auteur theory, is that it's very, how do you become an auteur? How do you get sort of in the club? And that's where sort of the literal boys club takes over, right? Because it's better to watch, um, you know, it's better to watch stagecoach for the fiftieth time than to try Meek's cutoff even one time because one of them is an auteur and the other one is Kelly Reichhart. Um
0: Exactly. So uh,
1: certainly you're right. There were a few women that they may have they may have looked at or that may have been picked up, but it was it was pretty hard. Um so but that does you know, those guys are mostly guns. So we're going to look at the present and say that, you know, it's not a matter of waiting for the canon to become more varied or to bring more directors into sort of the critical, more directors, more screenwriters, more everyone into into focus, into these conversations. Uh, we have to do something. We have to establish a new synophilia scene- that's invested in both pleasure and justice. So but, you know we're sometimes using the same tools and the same metric so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about the sight and sound magazine's greatest films of all time poll uh sight and sound magazine published by the british film institute uh sight and, uh, sight and, uh, sight and sounds poll is is very sort of it's a big it's a big thing among cinephilia uh cinephiliac circles uh And you are a consultant on this poll because it is one of the sort of most popular mechanisms for maintaining certain elements of autourism and also potentially bringing new names into these conversations, which presumably, you know, ripple outward from the poll, right? That professors start to look at them and start to teach them. Uh, New names come into the conversation and get covered, get picked up, anniversary pieces by cultural outlets, museums start to think about doing retrospectives or, you know, current spectives. I don't know what you call that, um, shows. So yeah, your job, when you came on, you tasked yourself or you were tasked with trying to combine pleasure and justice in this, uh, kind of traditional poll that, um, existed as late, as long as Truffaut was there to sort of make fun of it and also get, get ranked on it. So Uh, how was that experience? And what was sort of your goal when you when you entered there?
0: So I was contacted by the British Film Institute last summer and hired um, as an advisor to suggest names so they could expand the voter pool, voter uh, pool for the poll. And so this is a poll, the Part of what makes it kind of a big deal in film culture circles is that it only happens once every 10 years. So the last one was in 2012. And so they wanted to expand the, the, the voter pool. So I, I was told that I was one of a number of people uh, globally who was kind of hired to do this. And so I, it was up to me to approach the task in whatever way I wanted. So I basically tried to approach the task in two ways. Um, the first thing I did was I kind of created a list for myself uh, to suggest. I suggested names of cinephile writers who I really admire and read and follow on a regular basis, um, who are women, Black, Indigenous people of color, cr- critics, queer folks, um, trans writers, etc. People I knew um, would probably many of them may not be on the BFI's radar because they don't write for the super visible magazines, the super visible outlets, the legacy outlets, et cetera. They write for smaller places, they're freelancers, but these are all people whose ideas and writing I really value and I follow on a regular basis. So I wanted to make sure I put them uh, on BFI's radar and um, have them you know, join the, join the pool if BFI was going to uh, admit them. And I think, I, I, I think they did. Uh, secondly, I suggested names um, of a number of academics, scholars who are also cinephiles. Now, traditionally in old cinephilia, there's been a kind of gulf, a kind of tension between academic cinephiles and like cinephiles at large, working critics, because um, being part of those communities for many years, I discovered that kind of cinephiles and working critics are a little bit suspicious and a little bit condescending. Some of them towards academics because they they're, they view academics as sometimes being, um, you know, their writing is being too theoretical or too academic or too jargony or too identity politics-driven. By the way, I'm putting air quotes around all of these because uh, I think these, course, criticisms, yeah. <laughs> these criticisms are unfair and exclusionary. Um, but I started attending SCMS, CMS, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference, about a dozen years ago. And as I started to get closer to that academic world and I got to know scholars and talk to them about their personal cinephilias, I realized how passionate and invested and knowledgeable... And thoughtful, so many of them were about cinema and how strong their cinephilia was. So I felt it, you know, unjust that, you know, most of them or many of them were not um, kind of part of these uh, institutions like the Sight and Sound poll. So that was that was the other thing I did, is I suggested names of a lot of academic cinephiles. So that's how I approached uh, the poll.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. That's great. It was. It was a very. I was very excited to see it come out. I wasn't actually able to vote in it this time. And I, I can tes- testify, having been sort of an academic and a freelance writer, um, that <laughs> that we hate each other. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> that there is a kind of tension, uh, and I've experienced that when I, you know reference Barbara Bel Geddes in an AV club review. I don't get a great, I don't get great feedback from the public and also, uh, yeah, the, the inverse of that, that sometimes straddling that line is really difficult, but also it's important to have both voices when you're trying to formulate the so-called greatest films, which in itself is a very subjective, uh, sort of traveling through hundred plus years of an art form. But, um, This year, number one, for anyone listening, Jean Dielman, Chantal Ackerman's uh, very long, very beautiful, uh, very distressing film um, of a a life, a a day in the life of a woman named Jean. Okay. Um, Speaking of formal inventiveness, uh, thanks, Chantal Ackerman. uh, You also write that the new cinephilia is not entire, to your point that it's not entirely invested in questions of pleasure, but also has to move towards a kind of civic responsibility or responsiveness, Uh, you write that it is not that formal, medium-specific inventiveness is not important, merely that it would not be the overriding criterion of value in assessing films. Uh, And that made me think a little bit about sort of this tension between form and content, right? Like, style and politics. And the 1969 essay, Cinema Ideology Criticism by Camilla Narboni. I'm going to sort of do a little plug for a past um, new books in film conversation that I had with Daniel Fairfax, who wrote a very large, a very long and, like, comprehensive and beautifully insightful book about Cahaya de Cinema uh, and about, particularly about Camilla Narboni and and, uh, this 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 moment in the journal's history. Uh, but in that essay, uh, the two men write about sort of that there are films with radical content, and there are films with radical form, and only some films that have both. That's an, a vast overgeneralization, I know. But like, that the idea that a film can claim to be radical, but its form is extremely conservative, you can have inverse, and only some films truly achieve their radical politics through radical form. So I wanted to know sort of if you were to sit down with these men, where does your sort of theory of new cinephilia sit in terms of the tension and potential s- sort of supplementarity between radical form and radical content?
0: Yeah. Um, so, Camoli and Narboni, um, the, the, the way I view it, uh, they are drawing boundaries around. The film text, the film itself, and that is their object of consideration of study of analysis, and evaluation. there's also an evaluative element here. so if I were to offer like a revision of their of their idea of their theory, I would say this: um, we need a third term you know there's radical content, there's radical form, and then we need something else let's call it radical context. So, um, and so l- let me offer like two or three things that might, uh, that might go in this category of radical context. One production context. So all the circumstances surrounding the production of the film, like labor practices, care practices during production, all of these should be allowed to like affect, inflect the value of a film rather than being bracket it off entirely. Uh, To give an example here. So let's think of like Last Tango in Paris. And we all know uh, in in the last few years since Me Too, uh, the sexual misconduct and the manipulation that was engineered by Bernardo Bertolucci and Marlon Brando working together, they kind of colluded to humiliate Maria Schneider uh, for real not telling her what was going to happen in that sexual assault scene in the film so they could get a more authentic and real response and performance uh, from her. And Bertolucci said something like, as a filmmaker, you have to be completely free. So he was, you know, <laughs> indulging his freedom. And, you know, dude, you, you're not allowed to be completely free. That That's such an old school auteur idea. So this is another instance in which the needs of the work of art, aesthetic needs kind of get privileged over human needs, especially uh, the needs of a young and relatively inexperienced and powerless woman, uh, Maria Schneider. So knowledge of this episode, I have to say it affects my retrospective evaluation of Last Tango in Paris. So it should be allowed to do that. Uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So production context. Second, representational context. Think of, um, you know, when I think of an Indigenous made films, new Indigenous made films, they're automatically to me of more interest than a film made by a straight white person. Sorry, they just are because um, Indigenous filmmakers have been prevented from making films uh, autonomously for so long. There are so few of them. And they bring a certain set of lived experiences and struggles and certain life worlds to their films that have been rarely seen in cinema. So I'm just more interested in seeing those films, not to say that all of those films are going to be good or great, but just, you know, that also needs to inflect our valuation of cinema. And finally, I would say reception context. So when I read other people who say interesting things about films that I have not uh, thought about myself, then that also affects my evaluation of a film. So I think there's this whole bag of context that's not really part of Camolian Narboni's model.
1: Well, I love, okay, so this idea about context, what's really exciting to me is that like, it really throws into relief, the ways in which Tourism is all about the removal of context. How much yes. it's about this kind of narrowing of context, right? Because they're only watching the same films. You talk about like homo citation, constantly filmmakers referencing other filmmakers, which is, you know, when you're teaching a film class, that's really great. Watch this scene. Watch this scene. Look how they're mimicking each other. But there's this danger that what is also being reproduced. You write about this is violence against women on sets right so we see um i don't i'm not saying that like this is exactly what's happening or exactly that this is consciously happening but does something like Alfred Hitchcock's abuse of his stars on set or Kubrick's tormenting of Shelley Winters, uh, not Shelley Winters, excuse me, Shelley Duvall on uh, The Shining, does that inform what Tarantino does to Uma Thurman on the set of Kill Bill? Is that a? it's partially a cultural, you know, a a Hollywood institutional Me Too problem, but maybe it's a representational problem, too, which is that like there's some way in which these filmmakers really believe that like we need real female suffering and we have proof that that's what works because that's what's always worked but that's not true and uh it's pretty pretty toxic i'm understate i'm using i'm trying to keep it keep it uh settle here but perhaps (laughs) that is not just a like not purely a problem of that hr can come into but it's also like an artistic and an aesthetic problem uh
0: right right what
1: you watch
0: yes um i agree i agree and then it sets up these models that get valorized the more we write about hitchcock and um you know, and other directors like their are, there are entire Scandinavian lineages of films that, that are invested in female suffering and depicting female suffering all the way from Dreyer to Lars von Trier. So um, I think this is a global, global issue here.
1: Oh, even hearing the name Lars von Trier makes to go, oh, it's it's a visceral visceral reaction. I know I've never met him. He's never done anything to me. But his movies have done things to me I don't forgive him for. Um, Even though the actresses are free to consent. But okay. I was uh, I'm trying to transition into something a little bit about conservative nostalgic streak, but I'm sort of haunted by. Lars so let me shake it off and talk about your essay um, for a new cinephilia, which was originally printed in Film Quarterly and then now is part of the second edition. Something uh, that sort of stuck out to me was this: your claim that old cinephilia has a conservative, nostalgic streak um, and that, I'm quoting you again, the unity of film culture is a figment of nostalgic fantasy, a fiction propagated and sustained by the imposition of a false universalism. Uh, and this made me think about the Oscars. Why wouldn't it? Everything makes me think about the Oscars. Um, and I'm, you know, the particular kinds of, as I'm reading your book and thinking about the discourses around film, uh, and also in my own editing work, I'm thinking about the films that seem to generate so many takes, so many conversations, sometimes really fascinating, sometimes kind of redundant. Uh, and two of the films this Oscar season have been The Fablemans and Tar, uh, One of which I liked, one of which I didn't. I'm not going to tell. But I was curious, putting aside Oscar fever or picking it up, what are some films to you that embody the cinema of the past, some recent films, and some that embody cinema of the future? Um, Another way to take this would be like, what about cinephilia of the past versus cinephilia of the future? Though that might be burning individuals, uh, you might want to tweak your answer accordingly.
0: (laughs) Um. You know, what you mentioned about this kind of conservative, um, nostalgic streak in old cinephilia, um, what I kind of, what I meant there was um, a certain defensiveness in old cinephilia. And Sarah Keller has a wonderful book called Anxious Cinephilia that that uh, uh, discusses this uh, in wonderful detail. So there's a defensiveness in a lot of old cinephilia that, that I see, uh, which is that um, a lot of formative films might be seen in childhood or young adulthood and then as people get older they find it very difficult to let go of those films and there's a great passionate love of those films and they don't want uh, they get very protective about those films so there's a reluctance to like either trouble or uh, renounce uh, cherished films that cinephiles have loved for years and decades um, which I've always found a little bit odd because When we, excuse me, when we gather, when we get new knowledge about those films uh, or just new ways of looking at the world, evolving ways of looking at the world, because our consciousness hopefully is always evolving from one year to the next, that should also affect the way we look back to to these films that we once loved. And so the resistance to that, the defensiveness against that um, is, is what I kind of, uh, you know, associate with this conservative, uh, nostalgic uh, streak. Um, but, to, but to answer your question about these the cinema of the future or the new cinephilia, I would say there are a lot of recent films that uh, might be set to be new cinephilia films. Uh, just a few examples. Uh, For example, I love this film so much, uh, French filmmaker Céline Sciamma's Petite Maman, which is streaming on Hulu. Uh, It's made by a queer woman uh, like Siamma and like uh, her other films. Um, It's about, uh, it concerns women and girls and their close relationships, uh, the rituals that they enact. It's a mysterious, uh, slightly melancholic, magical film. Uh, Everybody, please, please watch this film. Um, Another one might be this great documentary uh, called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, made by Laura Poitras about Nan Golden, the artist Nan Golden. It's a wonderfully collaborative work between these two women. And it's a film that blends art and politics in a way that just few films do in the history of cinema. It just seems like a real groundbreaking work. Uh, and this this is a film that's going to be uh, coming to HBO in the next few weeks. Uh, let me add one more recent film, uh, a film called EO, uh, which is which is made, uh, which is actually about a a story. It's about a, it's a story of a donkey, the life of a donkey. And it's aesthetically bold and experimental. It's a film against speciesism and it's made by a straight white man. Yes. Straight white men can make new cinephilia films. (laughs) This is not just for non-straight white men. It's made by an 84 year old man, um, you know, at the peak of his cinematic powers it's a great film and this one is in theaters now and it's also streaming on the criterion channel But I would also add new cinephilia films are not only recent or new films. There are also lots of older, wonderful films that lend themselves to appreciation through the new cinephilia paradigm. So let me mention a couple here. Uh, A fantastic film called Girlfriends from 1978 by Claudia Weil. Uh, It's a film focused on a young woman in New York City, uh, her career ambitions, and how she navigates female friendship. And it really gives you the feeling of like rising up from women's lived experience. This is a movie that I'm convinced could absolutely not have been made by a man. Um, this is streaming. I'm pretty sure it's streaming currently on HBO. But if you haven't seen this classic, you know, this underseen classic, please do. And one last uh, one. Um, uh I think, Annie, you and I both uh, know the wonderful scholar Maggie Hennefeld, and Maggie was a co-curator of this fantastic new Blu-ray set called Cinema's First Nasty Women. I know they did a podcast on your show, which I loved. They did. Uh, about, it was great
1: to have about, them, yes. Yeah.
0: It's so good. Uh, It's about this Blu-ray set by Kino Lorber, and so the films there, um, concerning uh, films there, about a French character named Leontine, these anarchic films about feminist destruction and uh, gender protest um, by an actress who's still unidentified, who's mysterious and unknown. These are new cinephilia films, the Leontine films, as as Maggie will tell you. Um, so I think Nusenophilia is both in the past, in the present, and in the future.
1: that's great uh, I the great recommendations some of I've seen others I just wrote down so you've you've curated my weekend viewing. Thank you. <laughs> um, continuing in this vein of curation uh. You are the editor of the Quorum sort of a column or section of Film Quarterly, which is the which is an online, I believe, open access Quorum. It's can anyone read it, or do you need yes. a subscription? So it's, it's open yeah, it's access. an open it's access online, online and open column. Access. Uh, and you are the editor of the section. So I'd like to hear. Okay, so full disclosure, I have been I have contributed to Quorum. So this question is being asked primarily for listeners. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that section is and I don't know the answer to this question is um, what do you what do you see as your role as the editor in bringing sort of new voices and new texts into uh, cinephilia conversations sort of the cinephile community of which like Film Quarterly is one of the sort of landmark journals right because it really does cross academic and sort of um, cinephilia circles. I don't know what you would call like, you know, extreme informed film lovers and buffs and those who maybe um, teach it at the college level or the, you know, regardless of your training. Film Quarterly is for everyone. I'm plugging Film Quarterly right now.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. I'm done doing (laughs) it,
1: but that was my attempt.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah. So about, about five years ago, I was approached by B. Ruby Rich, who's the editor-in-chief of uh, Film Quarterly, um, the legend B. Ruby Rich. And I'd been reading her for so long, um, it was wonderful to, to be approached by her. And she asked if I'd, be, uh, if I'd be interested in being the editor of their online column. And her vision uh, was this public-facing column of accessible cinema writing that's informed by scholarship, uh, but has a readership that goes beyond just scholars. So Quorum publishes, you know, opinion pieces that often take up themes that connect film and media to larger social and political issues and struggles, uh, feminism, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, etc., but also... Uh, issues in film and media studies today that are kind of ripe for conversation and debate, uh, like your wonderful piece, Annie, on how and why Marvel hates actors. Um, yeah. So You know, uh, I just thought th- no
1: one's ever talking about Marvel. Let's really, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. No, I, thank you very much. I tried to, yes, approach Marvel with maybe a different, not super fan-centered
0: Yes. Point of view. Yeah. Yes, and and we and we we need that, and we needed that. So thank you for, thank you for thank you. writing that for us. So that's that's thank like you. a a little description of what Quorum does.
1: Can you talk about another recent Quorum piece? As much as I'm glad that you shouted uh, mine out, what's another recent uh, article or essay you've published to give a range of the kinds of things that you
0: yeah. print? Yeah. Um, well, there's a wide range. One of them recently we published an interview with the Ukrainian uh, film collective that's been very important in the last year or so. And then uh, recently we published a rare uh essay by Monique Wittig, the French feminist film theorist, whose first piece of criticism was a piece on Jean-Luc Godard from 1966. And so we published a brand new kind of translation of that piece with a nice essay on her work. Uh, There was also a... um, So uh, another great piece was on the current debates about care and care practices in the film industry, written by uh, Leshu Torchin. Uh, who's a documentary scholar, and uh, the the Ukrainian piece, by the way, was um, the interview was conducted by Masha Spolberg uh, of Bard College, and uh, let's see. So um, another one was about uh, various documentary um, platforms and ecosystems, and an analysis of that landscape. So it's a very wide kind of uh, range yeah. of pieces that, that we that we try to look for, and so. Um, I'd like to hear uh, if, if I could um, just kind of put in a plug and say if there are scholars out there listening uh, and you like what you hear about Quorum, please don't hesitate to send us a pitch. Um, we're
1: always looking for good pieces. Is there anything particular that you don't get a lot of that you wish you got more or you feel like, uh, you know, you know, you'll know it when you see it?
0: yeah we do we do get uh several pieces that maybe not don't quite fit the quorum remit very mm-hmm. well in the, in the sense that we're we're slightly odd in that way quorum is is a place for like opinion pieces not pieces on individual films for example uh okay. or analyses or just conventional academic essays on films uh so they're a little more kind of polemical they take a position and they're idea driven rather than like Driven by an individual film, so because of these, because of the fact that it's kind of this narrow remit, we get fewer pieces than an, an, like our normal journal would get. But we're always looking for new, new, good, uh, polemical pieces.
1: So, if so, my advice—not that I work for Quorum—is whatever it is that you keep repeating to your friends over and over uh, your, yeah. your, you know, your hottest take your biggest opinion, your stop telling me that I already heard you say that thing about Marvel and actors and Chris Pratt and green screen, turn it into a pitch for quorum and leave your friends and family alone. Um, leave them alone. Great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so before we close for today, I just wanted to offer you the opportunity to plug any, uh, you just gave a really great plug for pitching Uh, the online column at Film Quarterly. But is there any other research or pieces or events that you have coming up that you would like listeners to know about?
0: Well, I I can plug a wonderful uh, Film Quarterly webinar series series we have a regular webinar series where B. ruby rich and rebecca prime and mark francis run this webinar series uh, where they um invite scholars who have written recent essays in film quarterly and they interview them and talk to them and discuss um you know uh, recent pieces with them recent issues with them and there's a fantastic two-part um like two-event set uh, on disability, on the new disability arts media. So we did the first event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the next event is actually later today. I I, I should say later today as we're recording. Um, But these are going to be put on the Film Quarterly website, uh, videos of these. And so I learned so much about... Um, disability arts and disability scholarship just by watching these uh, webinars. So if you're interested in that and it's an emergent and important area in film and media studies, I would um, highly recommend that people seek out these two webinars on uh, disability arts media.
1: Thank you so much, Gears. I'm going to... On your behalf, I'm going to one more time repeat the name of your book, The New Cinephilia. It's published by Caboose, but you can purchase your copy at Indiana University Press uh, or wherever you like to buy your academic literature. I'm telling you, this is a great, great book. It's so much fun. It's so interesting and engaging. It's really going to change the way you think about the ways that you think about movies. Thank you so much, Gears, for joining me today. Uh,
0: Thank you so much, Annie, for having me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And I'm Annie Burke. This is Gira Shambu, and you've been listening to New Books in Film.